and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Ryan Last. It's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee stud, the injured Tennessee stud, well, at least he was injured then, takes us down that road of wrestling history, sharing his tales, his anecdotes, and stories we have not heard in many, many years without any further ado. The man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the legendary Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how are you? I'm great, my man. Doing just fine. Uh, looking forward to this one. I think uh, we're going to have some uh, some great some great information for fans and some pretty decent stories here, especially one in this episode. I'm looking forward to and got the old horse saddled up and ready to ride, my man. So we'll go when you're ready. Well, real quick here at the top round, we have to talk about the latest Super Studcast. It just dropped. Super Studcast number twenty-two, part two, with. Mr. Olympia, Jerry Stubbs, check this out, an hour and 40 minutes of classic wrestling talk, we talk all about Southeastern and so much more, you get to hear the difference between the atmosphere in the Southeastern locker room and Mid-South Wrestling where the promoter was asking the wrestlers to beat up the other wrestlers, (laughs) hear about that and so much more, we'll tell you more about it later in the show, but this really is a great addition to the Super Studcast, available right now at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast but ron on the topic of the studcast where are we going today well we're going to finish the last two weeks of september in 1975 uh we're going to do the knoxville cards uh give them the card the results the tvs and the payoffs like we've been doing for a lot of those matches uh, uh in the last few months we're going to answer questions about how good my memory is talk about my collarbone injury in depth and exactly how it affected me, then finished with a very strange call from my dad and Eddie Graham that took me to Tampa for a meeting this about the same time frame in 1975, and uh, they end up uh, getting me motivated, basically, uh, to change my life, and uh, and they may have in the process saved Southeastern wrestling. So, uh, We've got a good one today. I, I feel uh, that fans are going to really enjoy this one. So I'm just going to jump right into that first Knoxville card that we're going to be talking about, September 19th, 1975. This one is the third and the final night at the baseball stadium. Thank goodness. 
the fair in Knoxville had ended, but they're still moving out of Chilhowee Park. It took them about a week to set up and a week to, to tear things down. On this Friday night, there was a triple main event on the first ever Southeastern Night of Champions in Knoxville. The Tennessee tag titles of Ron Wright and my brother Robert Fuller were on the line against the assassin and Australian Bill Dundee. But there's no winner in this match because Rock Hunter and Tommy Sigler are going to both get involved in the end of this match, and both teams are going to get disqualified. Rock Hunter's got a brass knucks championship match that same night against Tommy Sigler, and he successfully defended that. The Mid-American title, tag titles of the new team, the interns managed by Dr. Ken Ramey, was a win for the champions against Les Thatcher and Dennis Hall. Newcomer Charlie Cook won his first Southeastern match against Louis Dupree, and Don Wright defeated Tony Peters. Let's talk about the TV of the Saturday, September 13th. That's six days before this card that I just uh, talked about. And uh, it takes place, obviously, on the day after the Saturday, the Friday, September 12th matches. So this card is to promote this card that we just talked about, this television. And there's three great tag matches on this TV. Uh, Ron Wright and Robert Fuller, the Tennessee tag champions, opened the TV. They beat Louis Dupree and Rick Connors. Then watched the re recorded video from the night before where Bill Dundee got involved in their, in their tag match and uh, against the Assassin and Hunter. Uh, they, they're defending their titles against the Assassin and Dundee the following Friday on the triple main event. Robert brought up my recent injury to keep my memory fresh since I wasn't going to be seen on any TVs for the next few weeks. And uh, I was nice of him to, to be thoughtful enough to go ahead and mention my name. Because <laughs> uh, I'm totally out of it at this point with this this uh, bad collarbone injury. So Tommy Sigler made a good Made good on his promise a couple of weeks earlier where he's, uh, it's where he promised to be a defending champion because he is the television champion. So he put that huge television trophy on the line again against Rocky Smith this time, the former Inferno. And they had an absolutely fantastic match. Rocky Smith really took it to the champion. Uh, Siegler won just seconds before the 20-minute TV time limit expired. Fans in the studio really loved this match as well. Siegler then joined Les of the set and talked about his Brass Knucks championship match coming up the following Friday against the champion Rock Hunter. Personality profile for this program was built around the new Mid-American Tag Champions, the masked interns managed by Dr. Ken Ramey. This was a quality team that had been working together for a long time, and they'd been very successful as tag champions many, many places in the country. Uh, Les Thatcher did an excellent job on this personality profile, uh, as always, uh, and he introduced the three stars. Fans had to be impressed with the list of tag titles these guys had garnered, and they knew them all. They didn't forget a single one, and uh, as they made a name for themselves everywhere they went, and uh, they were going to be here not that long because I, I really believe that Jared had plans to move them, but they were, they were, I was lucky enough to get to use them quite a few times while they were in the state of Tennessee. Hey, Ron, if I could ask you a couple of questions real quick. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ken Ramey is an interesting figure in wrestling history because there isn't very much footage of him. But if you hear anything from anyone who was there, they tell you he was a heat machine. They said that he could get so much heat by barely doing anything at ringside. And 
He was a great promo. So my question is, talk a little bit about that from your experience, from what you saw, just how good of a manager was Dr. Ken Raimi. And at any point in your career before he was a manager, did Dr. Ken Raimi ever referee any of your matches? No, he never refereed any matches, but I remember seeing him uh, in the 60s. And uh, he had these boys in the 60s. He started pretty early with doing it. He's a young guy. He was small. And I think that gets a lot of heat as a manager. And like you say, he was great on the mic. So he was strong there. Uh, and, you know, when you're a small guy, it doesn't take, you don't, you can get a lot more heat as a small guy, uh, oddly enough, uh, than a big guy can get sometimes. And uh, he was really good at what he did. Uh, I didn't know that he had done some refereeing. Doesn't surprise me. Uh, he was a pretty decent ring general. He was good with finishes. When you talk to him about uh, what you might want to do for a finish, if you ever gave him out, and I, some of those guys that I work with were really good, and once you figure that out, it's kind of like the same thing uh, that uh, Pat O'Connor did with me in St. Louis when he found out I was pretty good with finishes. He wanted me to figure the finishes all the time. And I kind of did that with Ramey here a little bit because he was so good with finishes. So he was a he was really a class act, actually. Uh, these two interns, and I don't remember their names. I wish I, I could remember their names. They were tremendous together. Uh, kind of like the assassins, had the, exactly the same look. You couldn't tell one from the other. They could switch out uh, without tagging, do all those things that got a lot of heat. And then they had Ramey out there on the floor just making sure that it happened every night. Uh, they were a great, great, phenomenal team. And like I said, they had won championships. I was amazed when they did this personality profile. I did not know that they had been so many places. Uh, so, uh, you know, they continued uh, that winning streak uh, as soon as the profile was over, right there on the first ever Southeastern TV show. They went straight to the set for Ramey. And uh, Ramey went to, when they went to the, the ring to wrestle, Ramey went to the set with Les, and he made some astute comments about their upcoming first tag title defense in Southeastern wrestling history against two wrestlers that also had a lot of history together, and that happened to be Les Thatcher and Dennis Hall. So Kim Ramey got in a very good parting shot at Les before he left the set saying, I have no doubt we will beat you and Dennis Hall next Friday night because we've never lost a match against a TV commentator. <laughs> I in the control room, I was up kind of hidden so nobody could see me, but I cracked on that one myself. It was like, wow, what a shot there, you know. And, you know, there, there really is a lot of history with Les and Dennis Hall. He was one of the wrestling cousins. Well, there were two of the wrestling cousins with Roger Kirby. Yes. You know, that's what I say. There's great history between those guys. They had wrestled in hundreds of, literally hundreds of tag matches together. And uh, they're going to have a great match with uh, with these two guys. And they did have a great match with those two guys that following Friday night. Uh, they were a great team. And those interns and Ramey were just, they were, they were fabulous for that time frame. Uh, the TV ended with a wild match, teaming for the first time ever the Assassin and Bill Dundee, the Australian, against a very good team of Dennis Hall and Don Wright. Uh, Rock Hunter accompanied the Assassin and Dundee to the ring. He went to the set when the match started to laughingly apologize about the horrible injury that I had suffered a couple of weeks earlier and brag on this new tag combination of the Assassin and Dundee. 
A few minutes later, he went back to the ring to trip Don Wright behind the referee's back and cost Wright and Dennis Hall a victory. All three heels came to the set after the commercial break for the last interview of the show. Rock Hunter attacked Tommy Siegler, his opponent for the upcoming Brass Knucks title the following Friday. The assassin Bill Dundee promised to become the new Tennessee Tag Champions against Robert and Ron Wright. The assassin and Hunter finished with another phony apology to me, wishing me a quick recovery with a big big laugh, obviously, uh, so that they could break my other collarbone. Is how they finished it, I think. You know, they said, okay, we've got one. Oh, we're so sorry about what happened to you, but we wish you'd get well real soon to come back so we can break that other one. So it was another really good TV, I thought. And, uh, and I was sure that our audience uh, each week was growing fast, even if the house shows weren't. I mean, we're in a bad time of the year, but these televisions, I always had a feeling that they were putting people in front of their television sets that had never watched wrestling because we're on that big new station, WBIR, got that huge signal. We're going into homes we've never been in. And I think that we're really building audience during this time period. So, Ron, that show you told us about, the Friday, September 19th show that you just built up on TV, how did it do? Well, it it was about about the same same level as the last two shows at the baseball stadium. The crowd was about 2,300. It was a gross of about uh, almost 7,000 and a total payroll of about uh, 2,000. The bottom guys, Don Wright, Tony Peters, Charlie Cook, and Louis Dupree, and the ref got $75 each. The interns, Ramey, Thatcher, and Hall, about 125 And Hunter Siegler, Robert, Ron Wright, the assassin, and Dundee, they all got about 150 each. Uh, so uh, I was a little, you know... It, it was it was not what I expected, I guess I should say. Well, that was going to be my next question. This was, I think, the third show that you ran at the baseball stadium. Obviously, it wasn't ideal. You didn't really want to be there. But looking back on those shows now, do you consider them a success? Well, I was I was not not happy about the last payoff, the one that we just discussed. Uh, it was made even worse by the fact that I wasn't on the card and I couldn't split my payoff among the other guys. And that's what I'd been doing since I started Southeastern. I hadn't until that night really realized how much extra it made the boys when I was on the card and I wasn't paying myself. I was very happy that we were returning to the Chilhowee Park Amphitheater the following night. Uh, I felt better about things when a longtime fan came up to me and told me that the three baseball stadium crowds this year uh, were about twice as large as they were for John Cassano the year for the year before. So uh, we were still in the fall of the year, a tough time for owners of wrestling companies worldwide. And I realized I needed to do more to get back to those three-day weekends and keep the good talent that I was uh, beginning to get there in Knoxville. Uh, it was, I guess, basically the answer to your question is, uh, I was really unhappy with having to move, and and uh, uh, I think we did fairly well. I, obviously, when the guy told me that, that we drew twice what Kazana had drawn the year before, uh, we got new talent, uh, and uh, so I felt fairly good about it. Uh, but the bad part about it is, Brian, we're going to have to go back there every year. Uh, until we get big enough to stay in that Coliseum year-round. Uh, we're going to reach a point in, in later in the 70s 
when uh, we have no problem running against the fair. In fact, we may draw more people than the fair sometimes. You know, we, we're going to do some real business later on. So uh, let's talk about the last Friday night in September of 1975, which was September 26. And this card was headlined by a most unusual six-man elimination tag match. And the way those elimination tag matches work is as a man is defeated, he leaves the ring and the match continues. It Sometimes it can end up one against three, but it continues until one team has been entirely eliminated. All three of them have lost. The other team wins the match at that point. Uh, it's a great concept, great idea. Uh, fans really love those things because a lot of times it goes back and forth, and sometimes you end up with three guys in there against one. So the six participants for this elimination match were Ron Wright, Robert Fuller, and Tommy Siegler versus the Assassin, Rock Hunter, and Bill Dundee. Uh, the match was won by Wright, Robert, and Siegler. The Mid-American Tag Champions, the interns, managed by Dr. Ken Ramey, defeated Don Wright and Charlie Cook. Uh, and I was not familiar with Charlie Cook when I decided to bring him in to have a look at him. I was impressed with what I saw in the match that he had with the interns. Uh, and I'm hiding at this point. Uh, I watched the match uh, from a spot where nobody could see me. And right there, I made a decision about uh, Charlie, Charlie Cook. I decided he was good enough to give him a push. I really didn't think when I brought him in that I was going to give him a push. But uh, I, I started already anticipating what great matches he and Norvell would have together. You know, it's like, wow, I, I want to put those two guys together. I can see that being big. And, uh, you know, so speaking of Norvell, he and Les Thatcher wrestled for a 20-minute time limit draw that the crowd really got into. And I, when I watched that match, I decided – uh, I'm going to bring that match back next week, make it a longer time limit because it was so good. I thought the fans that were there would like to see it again. Uh, then Dennis Hall won over Louis Dupree uh, in the first match of the night. The TV of September 20th, that's the night after uh, these the matches uh, the following week, the week before, I mean, on 1975, promoted the card that I just talked about. So I'm going to describe this television for you to see how – it was put together to promote the following card. And we had recorded the last match from the night before the Tennessee tag title with champions Ron Wright and Robert against the assassin and Bill Dundee. Uh, Rock Hunter had came down the ringside when the referee got docked down and put the assassin and Dundee in a position to win. But then Tommy Siegler showed up there, got involved to stop the potential win, and the referee sees what's going on, and he disqualifies both those teams. Uh, we recorded the interns' win with the help of their manager, Dr. Ken Ramey, over Thatcher and Hall. I didn't like to have less lose matches, so Dennis Hall was the loser in that match. And it was I found that uh, having less as a commentator and a wrestler, it was tricky uh, doing that. Uh, but Les and I were constantly talking about how we could keep him over as both a wrestler and a commentator. Uh, back in those days, he was moving to Knoxville. We didn't have a lot of towns running. He really couldn't make a living off of a commentator's pay, and he needed those Friday nights as a wrestler. So we were just trying to get by until we got to a position to where we no longer needed it, and he was going to be making enough money that he didn't have to have that. So 
there's going to come a day when he's going to rarely work for Southeastern anymore as a wrestler. And, uh, you know, I think he kind of liked that in a way because I was able to, as business improved, I was able to up his money as a commentator because he was doing such a magnificent job for me. So, Ron, how did you open up this TV show? Well, this TV opened up Norville Austin against Tommy Gilbert from Jerry Jarrett's side of the state. Gilbert is a good worker, and Norvell took advantage of that fact and called a great television match. A lot of up and down movement. Tommy Gilbert was small and moved well, too. And uh, it was a fine start to the show, man. I mean, they had a tremendous barn burner of a match. Wow, it was good. Norvell again won the match with his diving headbutt into the face of Gilbert as he charged off the ropes. I don't know if you've ever seen that finish, but it was really spectacular the way Norvell did it. He would always either throw the guy into the ropes, he'd go back to the ropes behind him and gain his momentum, the guy coming off, and he would dive in the air, and they would actually butt heads uh, in the middle of the ring. Uh, guy go down, Norvell covering. This one was really solid looking, and it got one of those oohs from the crowd, and that usually means the move got over. Uh, Norvell got the first interview of the show. He was going to be working against Les Thatcher the following Friday, and I could not allow less. I had figured out by now that if he's going to be working against guys, I don't want him to interview him. So I could not allow less to interview his opponents anymore. I was forced to get creative again. I had the TV and house show announcer, Phil Rainey, handle the interview from the regular set with uh, Norvell uh, because Les was going to, to be working with Norvell the following Friday. Les and I had anticipated the need from the very beginning once we went on WBIR for a third set, and this was a perfect time to introduce it. The interview was done entirely with a great split screenshot of Norvell and Phil Rainey together on the regular set on one side of the screen, and Les by himself on the other side of the screen from a set that the fans had never seen before. It was the first time we had used the third set, and it looked so good to me that I was not going to be, it wasn't going to be the last time. I really, really loved the look of it. And I loved the split screen being used for an interview rather than just in, in a match. The crowd loved it as the wrestlers went back and forth with comments to each other on the same screen. And I had a feeling that people at home were going to have that same impression. They were going to like the fact that they could see both of these opponents talking to each other about the match they're about to have the following week and being on that screen together at the same time. Uh, it was one of those things that we were doing with the new Southeastern program that just really made it rock. And uh, it would be a while before others followed us so far as split screen was concerned. I mean, you know, we were doing, obviously, the instant replay. Everybody was going to go to instant replay pretty soon after we started. But it was a long time before they caught on to the split screen. With split screen promos, do you have to be conscious of not overdoing it, not using it too much, not over-relying on it, of having the two guys going back and forth yelling at each other as opposed to a single promo where the guy's talking to the camera and talking people into the building or talking people into the building to see him get his ass kicked? Did you have to be careful not to overdo it with the split screen promos? Yeah, we, we didn't do it too much. I mean, no, I, I said now we've been on the air here for uh, four months, going into the fifth month, just about. This is the first time we've ever done it. 
uh, and we won't do it again probably. We may end up only utilizing that factor once a month probably, and that will be on matches involving less because it'll work good to put less, split him. He can't really talk to the guy about sitting there next to him. They can't really make an interview about, I'm going to kick your ass. Uh, you'd be wanting to do it right there, you know. So uh, it worked, and that's primarily that will be the only times that we will use that feature for a while is when uh, when Les is actually uh, doing an interview with the opponent that he's going to be working with. The next segment of the show featured the new tag team, Mid-American Tag Champions, the interns managed by Ramey. Against Tommy O'Wifire himself and Louis Dupree, uh, Tommy Rich made this match. I'll tell you, as he he fired up, uh, you know, when he got that hot tag from Dupree, that studio crowd went crazy. Uh, he looked like he was going to beat both interns, and uh, when Manny, when Ramey managed to stop him, as the referee's attention was drawn, uh, the tag team, the tag champs, Dupree, they beat Dupree. I mean, uh. Ramey got his shot on Rich. Rich had to tag Dupree back in, and the, and then the boys in turns took over and beat Dupree right in the middle. They all three went to the set with Phil Rainey to watch their match. Their win from the Friday night before against Thatcher and Hall. This is another example of I did not want Thatcher, who had wrestled them the week before, to have to interview them. So I put Phil Rainey on the main set with the interns. Uh, this again kept less less separated from his opponents from the night before, as I said. The interns, their manager, and Phil Rainey stayed at the set for the second interview of the show, and Ramey brought up that they were very familiar with uh, Charlie Cook, <laughs> but not so much with his partner Don Wright uh, for their Mid-American Tag Team Championship match the following Friday. I didn't know that they were familiar with Charlie Cook. I had no idea uh, Don Wright. Uh, so the, these guys, they're beginning to get over a little bit. But I was concerned that they might not be there long because, as I said earlier, they're coming from Jarrett's side of the state in Memphis. And Jerry had several teams at that point that he was pushing like crazy. And his new champions were Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson. So I'm, I got a feeling, you know, when I saw what's going on over on the opposite side of the state, that it's not going to be long until the interns are probably going to be looking for a place to go. Uh, and I wasn't in a position yet. I'm still in that strange position of not having enough towns running to make guys like those guys enough money. If you had enough towns, would you have gone after the interns at Ken Ramey? Would you have tried to get them to stay? Oh, yes, absolutely. I was really, really into those guys. They were good at what they did. And, they, you know, I could see why. They had been put over in so many territories. They really had their act together. I would have taken them in a Minnesota minute. Uh, I, uh, I would have loved to have had them. So we're talking about Charlie Cook. The personality profile was next, and it was all about Charlie Cook. It was pre-recorded, and I, I told Charlie the night before at the Knoxville show that I wanted him to, to wear a suit. Uh, this personality profile was exactly what Les and I had envisioned when we came up with the concept. Charlie was a former professional NFL player, a defensive end for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was born in Gainesville, Florida, and played at the University of Miami, where 
I happened to play ball and where the rock played. So, you know, he, he came from good quality, quality university material, you know? And, uh, so I didn't, I wasn't even aware of that until Charlie's doing the profile. And, uh, this guy was a legitimate pro athlete from a different sport, just the opposite of what wrestling was about before I came to Knoxville. Les pulled everything out of his tremendous background. He did a fantastic job on this personality profile, and he got Charlie to open up about things that he probably wouldn't have talked about. And that made Southeastern wrestling look almost as good as Charlie did during this thing. I was so hopeful, man, sitting there watching this profile that the WBIR executives at home may be there watching this profile as well. Uh, within about six minutes, that's a link to this profile went, Southeastern Wrestling and Charlie Cook, they were both on the scoreboard, I can tell you that. I could only imagine what fans were saying at home about the talent they were seeing now as compared to the big Jim Hess days not too long ago. Hey, Ron, if I could ask you a question, you know, a lot of people have a lot of perceptions about the South that may or may not be true. Did you run into any problems in East Tennessee with someone like Charlie Cook, an African-American, pushing him as a babyface? Any blowback, any issues, any letters from the Klan telling you not to? Any problems whatsoever? None. None. And Charlie Cook was, he was such a oh, class act. He, 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 he spoke softly. Uh, he, he, was, he was a humble dude. I mean, it was just... He was amazing to, to work with. And, and I'll use him in my other Southeastern as well. I mean, Charlie's going to have a run with me here. He's going to have a run with me in the early 80s, too. I really like Charlie Cook. Uh, he, he was an unusually good athlete and a pretty darn good wrestler. Uh, I saw uh, the other day looking at something, and, uh, and his name came up, and I saw where he had beaten Dory Funk Jr. for the Florida Heavyweight Championship in the 80s. I mean, so, you know, he wasn't just getting put over by me. Uh, they were putting him over in Florida. Uh, he, was, he was a talented guy, and uh, I felt really lucky to have Charlie Cook. And so I throw him right out of that personality profile. He's right in the ring for the very next match. Uh, I mean, obviously, we pre-recorded the profile, but, you know, boom, the profile ends and a little commercial break, and bam, there's Charlie Cook in the ring for the third match, his first ever Southeastern TV show. He wrestled the much larger guy named Tony Peters, who out of Kingsport, uh, and made a short match out of it. And he did, he made the short match out of it because I had talked to him the night before after I watched him work and I explained to him that I wanted to give him a really good shot at getting over. And uh, he was smart enough and he was professional enough to understand what that meant. And he went out there and kicked the hell out of that big guy in just a couple of minutes and uh, got himself over. Uh, he followed up that great personality profile with a great first win on TV. And then he joined his partner, Don Wright, for the third interview. He briefly touched, Charlie did, on what the interns and Ramey had alluded to in their earlier interview, but he didn't brag about it. Uh, he just said that, uh, that, that he was part of a six-man tag that took the Mid-American Six-Man Tag Championship from those guys, the interns and Ken Ramey. Well, Les knew the whole story. And he told everybody 
that Charlie was the guy who won that championship match. Uh, and that made Charlie look even better. Uh, he was so humble as a baby face that he didn't brag about it. He didn't want to tell anybody that I won the match. He just said, yeah, I was on the team that won. Uh, it, it made, it made a better baby face out of him right there to me. And it completed a great first impression that I thought he made that first show for Southeastern fans. It also added a little fuel to the fire for the following Friday night's mid American tag championship match in which he's going to be in the ring with Don Wright against those teams, that guy, those interns. The last TV match was a barn burner. Uh, it was it was a very unusual six-man tag on television. You hardly ever saw anybody do that. But because the main event is a six-man tag the following Friday, I put Sputnik Monroe and Jerry Myatt and Don Lambert in the ring. Uh, they were introduced by Phil Rainey. The, and uh, there's no challengers. The challengers weren't even in the ring. So they introduced the heels. And then... Around the corner comes Ron Wright, Tommy Siegler, and my brother Robert and out of the dressing room. And then when they entered the studio, there was nobody sitting in the building. I mean, fans went crazy. You could tell instantly that this was going to be a good match. They shook hands with the fans. They kept the excitement going. And uh, when Sputnik, the great old pro he was, realized the excitement was about to die a little bit, he jumped out on the floor and tried to attack all three of them. And they all three nailed him, and he went down three times, and his partners had to come out and get him up and try to get him back in the ring. And the baby faces entered the ring while all that's going on. And this studio was just on fire. I mean, match lasted about 10 minutes. I don't think half the people in the studio crowd ever sat down during that match. Sometimes things you never think uh, are going to happen are going to get over just do. When you don't really, you can't plan for that. It just happens. Uh, and this, uh, this match, a prime example of that. And when all six of the men ended up in the ring together and Robert put the fuller leg lock on Jerry Mite, it seemed like the root was going to come off that television station. After the victory, all three of those guys returned to the dressing room and out came the assassin, Rock Hunter, and Bill Dundee to a chorus of boos. Just as loud as that crowd was screaming for the baby faces, they screamed just as loud and booing the heels. These three heels watched the video of the main event Tennessee tag match from the night before that ended up with the same six wrestlers involved in the main event for the following Friday. You could hardly hear the comments from the three as the booze rained down on them. Les tried to explain how this six-man elimination worked, but the crowd never stopped. It was just pure pandemonium in there, and I loved that. When the video ended, they left the set, the crowd still booing. The buzz in the studio remained for the two-minute commercial break, and when Les opened up the two-minute interview segment with the baby faces, the three baby faces, pandemonium ensued again. Man, here they went again. The crowd was right into it. I got goosebumps sitting up in the control room next to the director, Bill Kincaid. It's like... Wow, man, this is tremendous. I could hardly wait for our return to Chilhowee Park Amphitheater six days later. Well, let me ask you about that, Ron, because this is the first show back after the baseball park shows. How was it going back to Chilhowee Park, and how did it do compared to those three baseball stadium shows? Because this is a bad time of year. Yes. Well, we outdrew all three of those nights at the baseball stadium, around 2,800 fans. 
getting back close to that 3,000 number again. Had a gross gate of about 8,500 and a total payroll of a little over 23. Dennis Hall, uh, Louis Dupree, and the referee got 100 each. Norvell Less and all three interns, Charlie Cook and Don Wright, all got 150 each. And Robert and Ron Wright, Siegler, Sasson, Hunter, and Dundee, all about 175 each. So better payoffs, a better crowd, and darn nice to be home back in Chihuahua Park. Before we go any further, Ron, let's take a break real quick and let the listeners know a little bit more about part two of Super Studcast number 22 with Mr. Olympia, Jerry Stubbs. Super Studcast number 22, part one, Unmask the Assassin, Jody Hamilton. Patrons around the world have shown their approval by making number 22 another record breaker, even before the release of part two. The stud has decided to unmask another star on the now-released part two of Super Studcast number 22 at tnstud.com, patreon.com slash studcast. Part two highlights one of the stars that Ron Southeastern and Continental made famous. Jerry Stubbs, Mr. Olympia, began his career in Southeastern Wrestling Knoxville as a job boy on TV. He wouldn't be there for long in that role. He was destined for stardom. By 1980, he joined Southeastern Pensacola and soon became a great mass star as Mr. Olympia. Hear his story, as well as the legendary assassins in this tremendous three-hour masked man spectacular at tnstud.com or patreon.com. Slash studcast for only $2.99. This is what Super Studcast are all about. And if you haven't listened to one, this is a great place to start. There you hear it a little bit about Super Studcast number 22, part two, with Mr. Olympia Jerry Stubbs. This is a fantastic edition of the Super Studcast. Find out who gave him the name. Who gave him the name, Mr. Olympia? And why? Find out what happens when Paul Orndorff and Larry Higgins go at it in the dressing room. Hear about that and so much more. We talk Southeastern. We talk Continental. We talk about Jerry Stubbs breaking in in other territories. We talk, of course, about Mid-South Wrestling and so much more. And, of course, the burning question everyone has to answer. How stiff was Ron Fuller? And tell me about that wraparound <laughs> punch. We get all of that taken care of. Check it out today at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. You get in the door. It's the best deal in wrestling, and you certainly want to hear this today. Part two, part one with the assassin, and part two with Mr. Olympia. But we'll tell you a little bit more about that later in the show. Ron, where are we going to go to now? Well, I want to spend a couple of minutes answering a question that I've been getting from fans around the world. A fan seemed to be amazed at my ability to remember events, actual wrestling cards, and Southeastern wrestling TV shows from more than 40 years ago. And I can understand their question about that. Uh, believe me, I wish I did have that kind of memory. Uh, but I don't. I don't have, I can't remember all of the details. So let's talk about the TV shows first. Luckily, I saved quite a few items from my past uh, and one of those is the original southeastern continental and usa wrestling tv formats for every show that we did uh 
And otherwise, I'd have no chance of really knowing what those particular matches were. But uh, those formats, and, and, and I, th- I save so few things. I'm so thankful that these television formats from these companies I still had, and I still use them. Uh, I made notes every time about the match, the interviews, and sometimes even the angles on the TV shows. Uh, we used the formats to keep everyone on the program, uh, aware of who they were working against and where in the show they would be on. I used to pass them out on TV on Saturdays to the commentators, to the announcer, to the production crew people, and to the wrestlers. And I would take the time to explain what I wanted and why I'd placed these people there if they took the, if they wanted an explanation. Uh, I could usually tell if a wrestler was really going to be a good one for me uh, by the questions he asked me about the show's format. Wrestlers would go on to become bookers for other territories. Uh, The ones that went on to become bookers for other territories asked lots of questions about the television format. If they didn't ask questions, they were probably going to be just wrestlers for the rest of their entire careers. So, you know, I could tell who who had it and who didn't simply because their interest in knowing what this format's all about. Uh, keeping up with the actual cards every night now in all these towns, that's a different animal for sure because you, we ran six or seven live matches every week in most of those territories and sometimes more matches than that. I never saved those because it was just too much to keep up with or retain. To get the cards for individual cities, I have three great sources. One of them is a gentleman named Bo James out of Kingsport, Tennessee, and a good friend of mine. He almost all, he is almost everything uh, about Southeastern from the day it began in October 1974 through the Pensacola, Florida days and Continental as well. I have another source that I use, a gentleman named Tim Deals, and he provides me with newspaper ads and results from the matches in the newspapers across the South, wherever we ran. We ran the newspapers, and uh, those ads, uh, Mr. Deals has been fantastic to send me a tremendous amount of information and even the results of, of uh, many of those matches. The final man to confirm accuracy is the gentleman with me right here on this studcast, and I think one of the great historians of the sport, period, the great Brian Last. And uh, Brian, you, 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 you've, anytime I have a problem, I know I can go to you. Uh, so it's both my goal and it, and it's yours too, as well, uh, to make sure we're as correct and accurate as possible with not only every stud cast, but every super stud cast as well. And, uh, I'd like to thank those people that have asked me those questions through social media and other, other ways. And, uh, this, I hope it properly explains how I, how I have such a great memory. Uh, my memory's maybe not quite as good as what they think. But I certainly have some great support when it comes to putting together the information that I need to be able to do studcast and super studcast. So, Brian, we're going to really change gears here now for the rest of this program. Uh, we're going to ch- we're going to a most difficult time in my wrestling history, maybe 
one of the most, if not the most. We're going to talk about my mindset during this first big injury to me and how I'm handling it, my my first experience of being off for an extended period of time after my first five years without a bad injury. Uh, so I'm not taking it well. I'm not dealing with this collarbone problem too well. It was difficult to adjust to not putting on my gear every night and having to watch, sit there and stand back and watch others perform. It was a great life lesson for me, this injury, about how to deal with tough times and not allow myself to fall into depression and just good old self-pity. Uh, I realized at 27 years old, I'd not dealt with much adversity from injuries, and this clavicle injury tested my ability as a man to be a man. Uh, I mean, it was a tough injury. There were a lot of other issues in my life at this time uh, to deal with as well as my injury. My income was small, and sometimes money can be a very intense problem. I was coming off three straight Friday nights out of my normal wrestling venue and also competing with the the fair in the worst time of the year. The last three houses were significantly smaller than what I'd seen during the summer out at Chilhowie. And uh, I was also hurt. And for the first time in my career, I could not wrestle and therefore had no income from the ring. Uh, not only did I have my family's bills to be paid, I also had to pay $2,000 a month in payments to John Kazana on behalf of Southeastern Wrestling from buying his business. So uh, I'm really I'm really in a bad jam here, and things aren't going good at all. My attempt to improve my own life over the summer with the dig, the archaeological dig, had basically been a failure. And by the third week in September, my wife was enrolled in law school at the University of Tennessee. I was unable to pay her tuition as I'd been doing the, 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 that previous summer and, and, uh, and then during the fall, the spring of 1975, and she had to borrow the money from her mother and father to continue her education. That fact alone really jolted me, and, and, and it hurt my confidence to care for my own family made me made me feel less a man than what I what I was. Within a few weeks, my wife and two sons would be moving out of the home I live in. So I was at a turning point in my life. I could have easily given up on Southeastern, gone back to Florida, another territory, if my clavicle injury ever healed properly, left my broken home and basically given up my future. Uh, I was at a truly critical point in my life, and that's when I got a call from my father. Well, that could be either good or bad. <laughs> Based yeah. on things you've said about Buddy here on the show. Yes. Well, there you go. You know, I mean, and, and this is a, this is another example of my relationship with my dad. Uh, so I'd been in Knoxville for less than a year. I'd accomplished some good things with Southeastern, but this was a critical time in my decision making, and I think somehow my father knew it. Uh, we didn't talk much, but he had visited Knoxville several times, usually when matches were running, and he could see how I was drawing, how I was booking, and what type of business I was running. This call came from him uh, to invite me to fly to Tampa for a visit with him and Eddie Graham. I asked what for, but he said, just come on down and we'll talk about it. I didn't like that. That kind of scared me a little bit. You know, he didn't want to lay it out there. So two days later, I flew out of Knoxville. And uh, made my way down to Tampa and planning on returning uh, two days later, come back to Knoxville on a Friday. 
He picked me up at the Tampa airport and we went back to his home where Eddie was there waiting on me. There was some small talk about my injury and how things were going, but I knew this was more than just a social visit. <laughs> Finally, I opened the door to the real conversation that was hidden in the background. Well, Ron, before we get to whatever they're going to talk to you about, let me ask you a couple things. In terms of how your father would have known what you were going through, he had been there to visit, but was he regularly talking to Robert? Would he have talked to Jimmy when Jimmy went down to Florida? How would he be so aware of what you're going through? And the second question is, how far away from Eddie did your father live in Tampa? Well, he lived across town from where Eddie was, but I have no doubt uh, Rob and, and my father had a different relationship than I had with my dad. They were a lot closer. After I left to go to college, uh, they spent a lot of time together, and then they had a, like I said, a different relationship. Jimmy, I know Jimmy's down there in Florida during this same time span, and I know my dad's talking to Jimmy, and uh, and I know that Rob's telling him about my collarbone, and he's telling him about different things, and uh, so I know Dad's kind of up on things, even though he and I aren't talking to each other a lot about what's happening to me personally. Would your father be aware of what's going on in your personal life? Well, not at that point. Uh, he had no idea, neither did Rob or anyone else, what's going on there. So, you know, he, he that that didn't have anything to do with it. But I think uh, the fact that uh, that I was hurt, I was unable to wrestle, uh, he probably knew I was struggling a bit. Uh, he knew that you didn't get paid when you didn't work. And so... So, uh, you know, the two of them are sitting there, and I'm sitting down with uh, with two of the great minds in the sport this time frame, uh, certainly. And so they, they took turns explaining to me, <laughs> and this is, uh, this is an odd conversation, but they took turns explaining to me why I was not going to be able to make a success of Southeastern. Uh, both of them had been to Knoxville matches. Eddie had worked the first Coliseum show for me uh, with his son, Mike. And that was just nine months earlier. My father, as I said earlier, he'd been to many Southeastern matches. I sat there silently for probably 20 minutes as they made their case for my demise. <laughs> I hate to put it that way, but that's where it seemed to me. You know, I mean, good gosh, guys, uh, am I that far from being where I ought to be? The longer they talked, the more upset I became. They offered to buy me out to keep me from losing what I had worked toward, I think is the way they put it. They offered me the opportunity to return to Florida and work for them again. Uh, they told me I was a great guy and a hard worker, but maybe I wasn't cut out to be an owner of a wrestling territory. Uh, so, you know, it, it, they just, and then it went on and on and on. Uh, like I said, for 20 minutes, probably I didn't say a single word. Uh, so when I'd finally heard enough, I, I got up, I went over to the telephone on the bar by the kitchen in my dad's home and, uh, got on the phone and I called Delta airlines. Uh, they looked at each other with big question marks on their faces. Uh, I made sure they, they heard me change my reservation to get on the next flight back to Knoxville. <laughs> <laughs> I went and got my little small bag that I had packed to stay a couple of days with, with mom and dad. And, uh, and, I, and I picked up the phone again and called the taxi for the airport. And my mother was in the back room and, and she'd evidently been listening. I guess she knew kind of what this conversation was going to be about. And she came out of the bedroom crying, uh, 
My father said, no, you know, boy, you know, let me take you back to the airport. But I said, no, no way. Uh, I'm just waiting for the cab outside the house here. And <laughs> it was a it was a long flight home. But but in that two hours, I firmly made up my mind to go back and absolutely make a success of Southeastern wrestling and the rest of my life. I can't believe they thought you would have gone for it with the way they pitched it. I mean, if you were a weaker-minded person, maybe. But the way you're saying that they laid everything out to you, it's it's them putting you down. You know, it's too much for you. You don't want to lose everything. You've got, you're in too deep. They're really putting you down. It really seems like a really bad sales pitch. It it was it was a bad it was a bad trip for me. It was an extremely bad trip for me. Uh, I had no idea that they were going to make a move to try to buy my company and uh, and you know I I think uh, I didn't go into it any further. Didn't ask what they'd pay me because I felt like they would have probably insulted me big time at that point. So you know uh, I I just I, I wanted to get out of there. I just wanted to leave. You know, but I got to be honest, Brian. Uh, you know, there might have been another another reason for that meeting, and it might have been to motivate my butt, you know? Really? You think that they would have done that? I think, uh, you know, I, well, I prefer to think that that was their motive. You know, I really don't want to believe that they were just there to, to get my territory because they thought it was going to be good, and they and they— they had the talent and they had the bookers and they had the, the means and the ways to make it successful. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, to this very day, I really don't know the answer to that question. Was it to motivate me or was it just to, to, to get what I had worked hard to try to build at this point? So, uh, but bottom, bottom line is, uh, I went home and, and I, and I, and I got off my ass when I got home and I started making some calls to old friends who could turn me on to some talent. I began to set up guys that would not only make me money, but take my territory to the next level. The first was a wrestler that I'd worked with many times in Australia, a worker who had been at it for many years with, fabulous ring psychology and the ability to lead young baby faces to have great matches night after night. And I knew that because I had worked with him in Australia as a as two years in basically. And he was just making me look fantastic. Uh, and that guy was a guy named Don Carson. And, uh, and I scheduled Don to start in November. I did not want to wait. I want to fill my territory with some good stuff in November. I scheduled. The next one I scheduled uh, was a call to Vince McMahon Sr. And I asked for Andre. Uh, and I wanted him for in November as well. And, and the reason for that is it just happened to be rating months. Uh, and November, uh, you had a February book, you had a May book, and you had a July book. The November book is really a solid book for television stations. They want to see what happens in the fall of the year. It's a good time frame. So I knew this because of my discussions with Lynn Lepper, the sales manager there, and his describing for me what these rating books were all about. And I just set my sights on November. I know it's a rating period. So I want to get Andre. Uh, 
and I got him for two days this time. I didn't get him for just one. I got him for a Friday and a Saturday. So that means I put him in the Coliseum on a Friday night. It was a, I wanted to get back in that Coliseum. I wanted to see what this new television station was doing for me. And if it was going to start drawing more because the audience were new people and they maybe didn't want to come to Chilhowee Park, but they would go to the Coliseum. So I put him on the first Coliseum card in November. And then I kept him over on Saturday, and I put him in a wrestling match on television, by golly. And uh, and that night, Saturday night, I ran my first big-time spot show in Harlan, Kentucky, where I had 3,000-seat gymnasium and sold her out because I took that big sucker up there with me. And, uh, you know, so I knew what this booking was going to do for me in the, on the Coliseum show. Uh, and But just as important to me, or maybe even more important to me, was what it was going to do to me in that rating book when it came out in, in uh, December. Uh, I just couldn't wait. I was salivating at the thought of the numbers that it was going to produce in that Arbitron and that Nielsen rating book when I sat down with Lynn Lepper in December. Uh, just felt like, man, that's a call, Ron, that's going to make you money for years and years. And it did because Andre and I kept developing a relationship that got closer and closer. And Andre, finally, I didn't have to ask Vince Sr. about Andre. Andre said, I want to go to Knoxville. And, uh, you know, and Vince would put him there when he had off dates, he was sending him to me. So I'm going to start to get Andre a lot more than anybody in the country probably got him because I started out this way. And I got this two days in November of 1975. Hey, Ron, if I could ask you a quick question, I've heard in the past about paying Andre. Obviously, he got a great fee. Some people paid Vince McMahon senior directly. Some people paid Andre. But that's for a house show or a big event. What do you do for TV? How do you pay Andre the Giant if he works your TV compared to how you would pay other wrestlers? Andre's like a team player. Uh, he understands that wrestlers don't get paid the same way for television as they do for a house show. It's just that way. Uh, some territories paid you nothing at all for television. I think my pay was $50 for TV. I mean, that's a ridiculously small amount of money. But a lot of, a lot of places didn't pay anything at all. So, Andre, obviously, I think I probably paid Andre $300 for the television, uh, you know, because he was Andre. And, uh, you know, obviously, I didn't tell anybody that, but that was strictly between me and Andre. And it just helped me to keep creating a great relationship with Andre. So uh, I didn't stop with Andre, though. I, I mean, my next call produced a wrestler that I had admired for years and wanted to have in my crew if I ever owned my own company. This guy was the consummate professional in every way and would eventually become a part of the ownership of my next company and a huge part of my life, in fact. And that was Bob Armstrong. He would be in the next two Coliseum shows after Andre and also available in those hugely important television shows in November to bump those ratings even bigger. So I've got one show now with Andre coming in November. i got two shows with Bob Armstrong in November. I'm kicking butt in November. I'm not going to just 
put people asses in the Coliseum. I'm going to put people in front of their television sets and they're going to go, wow, this is Andre the Giant on Southeastern Wrestling. It really made some, made my business go. I kept at it. Next wrestler was a young star. I, I didn't, I, you know, my, I, I left that Tampa meeting, man. And I said, Hey, I'm going to make, I'm going to show them. I'm going to, I'm going to make them want it so bad. They'll really want to buy me out, you know? So the next young star who I could see being a perfect partner for Norvell Austin, uh, who was getting over really good already. And he was a big kid and he could really move. And I had seen him work in Memphis and I'd seen him work in Louisville a couple of times and he could wrestle in the ring. And his name was Butch Malone. I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with Butch Malone, but this guy, I team him up. I, I just could see a team of Butch Malone and Norvell Austin. And then I decided that's what I want to do. He said, yes, I'll come. I said, I think I want to put you with Norvell Austin. And uh, he was all for it. He was young. He couldn't talk well. Norvell's a pretty decent talker. But I needed a manager. And I knew who I wanted already. I had seen him do his thing many years earlier when he managed a young boy, a young buddy Colt in the Georgia Territory. He was big. He was fat. He was ugly. And he was obnoxious. And I'm talking about General Homer Odell. And he was going to be starting in December. I'm going to put that Malone and Austin together. I'm going to throw Homer Odell in there. Great interviewer. Ugly. I mean, heat getting. <laughs> wow. He was a heat getting. He was a missile, man. He was a dangerous. Uh, in fact, he was horrified of wrestling fans because he had gotten so much heat over his life as a manager. I had to hire people to watch him in spot shows because uh, he could he wouldn't go. It's too hot, Ron. It's too many people. It's too crowded. I can't get to the dressing room. He had a dozen excuses of why I can't go to the ring. And uh, so, but he's going to come in and he's going to start to light me up in '76. I didn't stop there. I started lining them up for 76. Now I've got some guys for November and December. In January 76, I had one of the greats coming. The wrestler that would take my business to the next level, I knew it was going to happen. A force in the ring. And he was capable of doing things that no one else was. Like breaking concrete blocks with his feet, with his hands, or with his head. You know, I mean, uh, his body was immense, but it wasn't fat. It was he was solid muscle, and that in itself is pretty darn difficult to attain. In January in 1976, Tora Tanaka is going to join my crew. I got things started in the right direction. Also in January 1976, I'm going to bring back one of the most popular baby faces to work for Southeastern so far, a talent that could go both ways as a baby face or a heel, and more importantly, he was already over there. And that was Jimmy Golden. He's coming back in January of 76. Another young baby face is coming in January of 76. Fans wouldn't know him when he arrived, but they're going to love him as they get to know him. He's the first cousin of the legendary guy that's on our, our Super Stud cast number 22, Jerry Stubbs, his cousin, a guy named Mike Stallings. And uh, he's going to 
he'll also introduce me to Jerry Stubbs. That's how I'm going to find Jerry Stubbs and meet Jerry Stubbs. Is Mike Stallings is going to come in and work for me starting in January 76. He's going to say, I got a cousin that can do jobs for you on TV. I say, bring him in here. And that's how I discover Jerry Stubbs in the fall and the spring of 1976. So, there's a lot of darn talent I've got. I get cranked up. I got greatly motivated, and uh, and I went out there and and made it happen. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's many others going to be arriving in '76. Way too many to to name here, but it's going to be the year that I turn things around completely at Southeastern Wrestling and completely for that part of the country. Wrestling is going to become the hottest thing there. I saw somebody on social media the other day, Brian, that sent me a note, and he said, Ron, I remember when Southeastern Wrestling in Knoxville was hotter than the Tennessee Vol football team. And, uh, you know, that's saying something in the state of Tennessee, man. When, when, uh, when they would turn the channel from football to watch Southeastern wrestling and it happened. Uh, so Southeastern wrestling is going to become a household name and the talk of the wrestling world, not just in Southeastern people around the country, wrestlers, promoters, people that know what's going on are going to start to talk about that little territory in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, uh, as you can see, Brian, I came home to Knoxville after that meeting in Tampa, determined to succeed. Uh, I was motivated like I had never been. I wanted to show my dad and Eddie Graham that that uh, I can do this, by golly. I will not fail. And not only that, I made them want to be a part of that territory, want to do as good as I was doing there. Uh, I got I got to where I could get anybody out of Florida to work for me I wanted. Uh, I didn't do it, but I could. Well, we don't know what the motives of your father and Eddie Graham were, but if motivation was the motive, it sounds like they succeeded in getting you going, and we'll certainly hear a lot more about this and all of these names. There's so many questions about these names in the weeks ahead here on the Studcast, but as we wrap things up, I want to remind you, you can follow the Tennessee Stud on Facebook, the page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. All you have to do is like that page, and boom, automatically you are friends with a wrestling legend. On Twitter, you can follow the Stud, at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter, at Great Brian Last. You can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter, at Super Podcasts. Of course, we want to remind you once again, Super Sudcast number 22 is now available, both part one with the assassin Jody Hamilton and the brand new part two with Mr. Olympia, Jerry Stubbs. We've told you a little bit about some of the topics we discuss. Ron just hit on another one, Mike Stallings, Jerry Stubbs' cousin, who was in wrestling first and got him in. Find out what Mr. Olympia says about all this and so much more on the latest Super Studcast available right now for patrons of the Studcast at either tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 gets you in the door. It is the best deal in wrestling. Ron, where are we going next week? Well, Southeastern's going to roll into October 1975. I'm going to have a couple of, a couple of more matches. <laughs> I'm still hurt, but I'm going back to Memphis for two more matches in the next uh, Studcast. Uh, and I'm still not recovered from that collarbone injury, not even close. But uh, I'm hitting the road, and uh, and I'm going to be then 
getting out there and traveling around the southeastern area to find partners with high schools in the state of Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia that I'm going to start running towns. I'm going to start creating the territory that I always wanted. I've kind of held off for the first year. I'm getting into that second year. And before that second year ends, we're going to be running six nights a week. And we're going to be doing some big business in a whole lot of places where wrestling never meant anything. It's going to be the event of the, of the year. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.